Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is O.J. Shabazz. I'm privileged to be the servant or the minister to the Church of Christ, which meets on the beautiful island of Manhattan, west side of Central Park, in the historic borough of Harlem. And it's my distinct privilege this afternoon to welcome you to this sixth installment in this multi-part series of lessons that I've chosen to call the Revelation, Inspiration, and Illumination of the Word of God, Fact or Fiction. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, either the Bible, as we have it today, does not contain but is in fact the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of Jehovah God, or it is not. Either God is its author, or the Bible is merely a byproduct of humanistic ingenuity and wisdom, and did not come from God, came from man. In that instance, the Bible would simply be nothing but a great book filled with myths and fables and embellishments and exaggerations. Yet I'm here to affirm and to undergird your faith with facts and proof and evidence that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. It does not contain the Word of God. It in fact is the Word of God. I've chosen this designation uh, revelation, inspiration, and illumination because at the core of this consideration uh, rests the notion of one uh, accurately understanding the inspiration or the theonustia of God. Revelation, God revealed, God made known, that's what he did. Uh, inspiration, that's how God did it. He inspired holy men of God to speak and record his word, his way, and his will. Illumination is for our understanding, for our knowledge, for our information. The Bible, then, is the revelation, inspiration, for our illumination, that we might understand God's grand scheme for the redeeming of man's mortal souls. So, in this series, uh, I've taken in increments what I believe are very vital considerations, yet as we continue today, I want to continue to reference the catalyst and the foundation of these considerations, and that is the divine component of inspiration, the divine component of theonustia. And if you'll go back to my first video, I gave a rather detailed uh, explanation and a comprehensive view of theonustia, which literally means God breathed. That is the word from which we get our English word inspiration. It is used only one time in all of the new sacred writings of the New Testament. Theonustia is in fact the designation that indicates God breathed every one of these words. And so the revelation, inspiration, and for our illumination is the climatic theme of this series of lessons. On last week, um, I spent just a little bit of time beginning to breach the consideration, is the Bible the Word of God? And what about the 66 books that are in the English Bible? Why just 66 books? And how do we know that it should be 66 books? How does one then know that there are not books that should be in the Bible that has been omitted by man. What about the apocryphal books uh, or the pseudography? And on last week, uh, I spoke just briefly about the 15 apocryphal books of the Old Testament. There has never been any substantive controversy about uh, the quote-unquote New Testament apocryphal writings. They have long since been ruled out. And if you go back and watch video uh, number five, I enumerate those 15 books and I give you the litmus test in terms of uh, how the apocryphal writings were ruled out. The bottom line is they were never viewed by the uh, true first century church as inspired or sacred writings. And I asserted time and again in the video on last week that if the original audience to whom the apocryphal writings, uh, writings were written did not regard it 
as the theonustia of God, or God breathes sacred writings, then upon what premise would we pretend to accept any of the apocryphal writings as sacred uh, scripture today? So the fact of the matter is they have long since been ruled out. So today I want to proceed. What about the 66 that we do have? And how does one then know that these 66 are the only 66 that should be in this book that is known as the Bible? Now, first of all, let's give you a definition of perspective uh, of both uh, the books of the Bible, the word canon, therefore canonicity, or that which is canonical. I'll give you a definitional perspective of those words respectively momentarily. Then, second of all, I want to give you uh, five principles that were utilized in viewing canon or canonical or that which is legitimately sacred writings from God relative to the New Testament. I will then give you three principles that have been utilized in viewing and discovering uh, the canon or canonicity or the canonical books that comprise the Old Testament. As you well know, there are 66 books in our English Bible. 39 of them comprise the old canon. 27 of them comprise the new canon. Perhaps I should digress and use a word with which many of you may be more comfortable for the purposes of clarity. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. I prefer to refer to them as Old Canon and New Canon. The 39 plus the 27, Old, old Canon, Old Testament, 27 New Canon or New Testament together make up 66 books. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Each one of the 39 Old Testament books are 39 books. 27 of the New are 27 books, but the 66 of them make up one Biblos or book which is called the Holy Bible. Permit me to do that again. 39 Old Canon, Old Testament. 27 New Canon or New Testament make up one Biblos or one book, and we call that book the Holy Bible, which is God's sacred writings. As I probe this subject and have pondered it uh, through the many years, I personally am under the impression that the hundreds of years of a science that is called textual criticism has left in the mouths of both lay people, by lay people I mean those of us who are less studied about these subjects, and perhaps even among some scholars, by scholars I mean those who perhaps have given their entire life to a particular uh, genre of study, whether it is historical or textual or anthropological or whether it is uh, archeological or whatever the case may be. I believe that when it comes to the notion of textual criticism, that in some way it has conveyed the idea that it is man's privilege to determine canon or to decide what is canonical or what books really came from God. It, it, the, the, the science of textual criticism seems to have conveyed the notion that this has been man's privilege to determine which books are canon or canonical. There is a very fundamental premise around which I really need you to wrap your mind, and you're going to hear me echo this and resound this throughout this study today. And that premise is simply this. No man, no council, no group of people have ever enjoyed the privilege of coming together and determining what constitutes canon or that which constitutes books that are canonical. 
man's privilege has only been to discover that which God himself has determined, not through the process, or rather through the processes of textual criticism, man has not been able to enjoy the privilege of determining canonicity, but only discovering that which God himself has determined. And what I'm going to be reasserting time and again throughout this video today, relative to these 66 books that we have, is that they are there because God determined them to be canon, therefore canonical, therefore they enjoy all of the evidences of canonicity. Not man, but God himself. And in just a moment, I'm going to walk you through a very fundamental overview of the processes that have to do with how canonicity was discovered. Well, let me digress and talk about the word canon. What do you mean, Brother Shabazz, canon? The word canon has been used in the Chaldean Hebrew, later in the classical Kone Greek, but fundamentally the word canon means a reed or a standard or a rule. So when I talk about these 39 books of canon in the old, uh, 27 books of canon in the new, I'm talking about the standard or the rule, and therefore it came to mean that which is canonical. Uh, these are they which establish the theonustia or breath of God as a rule and as a standard. Therefore, they constitute canon and subsequently that which is viewed as canonical because they are the standard or the rule or the reed, if you will, uh, subsequently came to be known as canon. So I need you to, to get that definition of perspective. I, perhaps you're more comfortable uh, or more familiar with my using the word testament. You know, Old Testament, New Testament. Personally, I like to refer to them as sacred writings or old canon, new canon, and all of it makes up one big, uh, one big blast or one book, which is canon. Now, I keep digressing as my mind races this afternoon, but let's go back and talk a little bit more about the fallacies. And I don't want to say that in a condescending way. There are some great components relative to the notion of um, textual criticism. It's interesting that more often than not, the moral majority of textual critics have come to be viewed as modernist. Um, and, and modernism, more often than not, seems to be antithetical or against the notion of uh, Christology, Christianity, um, of, of, of Christian theology, um, not in every instance, but in far too many cases, uh, those who are textual critics have come to be uh, referenced as uh, those who bear the spirit of postmodernism and even smacks and overtones of secular humanism. I thought on uh, yesterday that perhaps in the very near future I would do some definitive study about modernism, postmodernism, and secular humanism and the definition of perspectives of what they are and how it is just radically uh, and adversely affected the culture, the now culture in the United States of America. Textual criticism is probably best divided into two components. One is referenced as higher criticism, uh, which deals with the genuineness of biblical texts, and then lower criticism, which deals with authenticity of the biblical texts. Uh, let me digress and, and be a little more definitive. When I speak about higher criticism, sometimes called uh, historical criticism, it really seeks to critique the date of the text, the literary styles of the text, the historicity of the text, and the authorship, uh, whom it was that penned these respective canonical uh, or sacred writings. That's the whole uh, notion of higher textual criticism or higher or historical criticism. Lower criticism really deals with authenticity and not the genuineness of date, style, historicity, and authorship. Let me say that again because I have a tendency to talk fast. Higher criticism 
is a scholarly science or a scholarly judgment that's applied to the genuineness of the biblical text, looking at the dates the texts were written, the literary style, the historical, uh, the historicity, and the authorship. Whereas lower criticism is a scholarly judgment that's applied to authenticity of the biblical text, um, and it's classified as lower or textual criticism. It really looks at and treats the form or the text of the Bible. And so lower criticism views authenticity. Higher criticism views genuineness of the text. I, I went through all of that explanation to simply, again, reassert that the osmosis of higher and lower criticism or textual criticism, and I say osmosis, because these practices have been developed down through hundreds of years where these men try to... Uh, uh, look to uh, the original autograph and compare the some 24,000 manuscripts available in classical Koine Greek, Chaldean Hebrew, uh, Aramaic in fractions or parts, uh, some 9,300 other manuscripts in parts, pieces, or whole that's in uh, Latin, or rather in, in um, uh, Armenian, Coptic, in um, uh, a number of other languages throughout the world, when they look at those manuscripts, they look at it through the eyeglasses of genuineness and authenticity or higher criticism and lower criticism. But the problem is it seems to indicate that man somehow has enjoyed the privileges of determining for God which books are canonical, you know, which books constitute canon. And I need you uh, to wrap your mind around this very fundamental fact. This is a truth. It is not a supposition or conjecture. It is a fact that God and God alone determines canonization. God is the determiner. Man is the discoverer. Whether in the presence or the absence of textual criticism, whether it comes through the eyeglasses of a layperson or through a scholar, one does not enjoy, nor has one ever enjoyed, nor shall one ever in the future enjoy the privilege of determining for God which sacred writings are canonical and those which are not. So that's important to this subject. It's important to this consideration because I want to go into it with the premise that when it comes to these 66 books that comprise the English Bible, it did not happen as a result of any one man, any one group of men, any one council or succession of councils coming together to determine which will be put in and which will be taken out. And momentarily, I'll give you further clarity, important clarity about that point that I just made, that no man, no group of men, no council ever came together to determine uh, canonicity or the canonization or which books were canonical. Now, I know that some of you students they're studying on a deeper level, are saying, yeah, but Brother Shabazz, what about the Council of Nicaea in 325? What about the Council of Constantinople? What about the Council of, of, of Janus? Um, and, and, and by the way, uh, the Council in AD 90 of uh, Jamnus, uh, many have cited that Council in AD 90, the Council of Jamnus, as the pivotal council where a group of rabbis came together in AD 90 in the Holy Land to determine the canonization of Old Testament scripture. And ladies and gentlemen, that is absolutely, positively not true. From a historical perspective, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the power of God in AD 70. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem adversely affected the Jewish culture. And from AD 70 moving forward, the lifestyle, religiously and otherwise, of the Jews in the Holy Land were impacted and affected radically. So then about AD 90, the Council of Jamus comes together and they began to discuss a number of religious matters relative to Scripture, but never has there ever been any definitive 
concise and conclusive evidence that at that council in AD 90 that they published a list of canonical books as a result of their coming together and having decided that these books will be rejected and the other books will were accepted. The historical fact of the matter is 500 years before the Council of Jamis took place in AD 90, the Old Testament canon had already been put in place and universally accepted by the Jewish uh, population uh, by, uh, 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 by and large. So there's absolutely no, no proof to that. Um, I'll give you a reference to study at the end of this video just as a recommendation. But the seven councils, perhaps eight or nine uh, in total, uh, the Council of, of uh, Ephesus, the Council of Smyrna, the Council of Constantinople one and two, the Council of, of uh, Ephesus, or rather of, um, of, uh, of uh, Jamis that took place in AD 90, uh, the Council of Nicaea, and there were two of them, not just the one in 325. None of those councils, the purpose of those councils was, was not to determine which books make up canon, but a discussion and a debate on how to accurately interpret those books. Not whether the books were canonical, but what was the proper interpretation and understanding of canon as it had already been received by the religious population of God's people. So the fact of the matter is there's absolutely no proof whatsoever that man sat down at one particular point in time in history, whether it be an individual or a council or multiple councils to determine whether these 66 books should be included, the apocryphal should be kicked out, the pseudography should be kicked out, or other books should not be accepted. The fact of the matter is God and God alone has always determined canonization. Man's privilege has only been to discover what God himself has determined. So let's talk about then the, I want to give you five principles that were utilized uh, in viewing the, uh, uh, the canonization. The, this is the historical and biblical process of canonization. Let me give you five principles that, and I'll start with the New Testament and go back to the Old Testament. The five principles utilized in viewing the discovery, not the determination, but the discovery process of canonization. Number one, the question is, is it authoritative? In other words, did it come with the authority of God? If you look at the internal evidences of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Canon, New Canon, it is replete or filled with scriptural laws and principles where God resoundingly uh, speaks to the notion of sacred writings and a need to understand its authoritativeness. Uh, God would even assert uh, principles like don't add to, do not take away. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 6, um, Revelation 22 don't add to the word of God. Don't take away because as it stands, it is authoritative. Uh, on many instances uh, in the New Testament, uh, for instance, uh, the Apostle Paul would uh, repudiate the teachings of the Colossian heresy in the book of Colossians because the positions, teachings, and writings of uh, those who propagated the Colossian heresies did not constitute the authoritative will of God. These are internal uh, resounding principles that talks about the essentiality of the authoritativeness of the word of God and God and God alone uh, enjoys the privilege of determining what is authoritative. So is it authoritative? In other words, did it come with the authority of God? Number two, is it prophetic? Was it written by a man of God? And I want to remind you that you need to look at this not in the present tense or in, in, in the tense in the sense of, of in prospect, but you need to think about this retrospectively. And that's important because when we consider the question 
about whether uh, these books were written by a man of God, the people who were living and alive at the time of these teachings and subsequent writings, they knew these men who were among them and knew definitively and emphatically without any question whatsoever that they were men of God. And therefore there was no controversy about the canonization or the canonical writings that they uh, produced because they knew that these men were men of God and those who were not men of God. Not to mention the many litmus tests about uh, a prophet. For instance, in Exodus chapter uh, 30, where God uh, says in, in, in uh, essence for the conservation of time, that if a prophet ever prophesied something that did not come to pass, he was not a true prophet of God. And, and, and therefore, if he is not a true prophet, what he prophesies is not true. So I'm trying to point up some of the many internal uh, resounding principles that were established by God himself and subsequently viewed as a universal set of eyeglasses by those uh, who lived during the time where they accepted and viewed canon. Number three, uh, is it authentic? In other words, did it tell the truth about God and man? And based on the accepted writings, one could know whether other writings uh, complied and in fact met that standard. There were many writings that did not tell the truth about God or man. And when compared to those uh, among which they knew and had no supposition or conjecture about its uh, being canonical, uh, at the end of the day, they knew that it was not authentic. Um, is it dynamic? That's the fourth principle. Did it come with life-transforming power of God? Again, these principles, when you look at the internal evidences in the scriptures, you see that these principles resound over and over again and was a very much was, was very much a part of their day-to-day, week-to-week uh, thinking relative to that which was holy and sacred. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and of the spirit and of the joint and the moral, and is a discerner of the thought and the intent uh, of the heart. The Bible itself uh, is replete with the references that refer to the dunamis or the ability of the word of God being life transforming. Therefore, I reference the word dynamic. Is it dynamic? Did it tell the truth about God? I'm rather, did it come with life transforming power from God? And if it did not, it could not be considered canonical. The fifth principle was it received and collected, read, and used by the people of God? Ladies and gentlemen, I'll just be transparent with you. This fifth principle is more than enough for me. And I assert the same principle relative to the 66 books that are now in the English Bible as I did to the litmus tests uh, against which the apocryphal books and the, the pseudography was measured. And that is simply this. If the original audience, to whom it was written, knew it didn't come from God, why would we contend that it came from God today? Why would we then be motivated to try to add additional books when they did not recognize additional books? And again, I want to assert relative to the old canon uh, somewhere around uh, 400 B.C., and especially by 200 B.C., 22 books uh, that uh, began to assume the threefold designation, the law, the prophets, and the writings, were already in place. The canon accepted by that which they read in their assemblies, that which gave them guidance about 200 B.C., um, has already been in existence and, and viewed as canonical. So uh, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this is why Jesus, with no reservation, makes a number of quotations from Old Testament recognized canon and sacred uh, 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 references 
um, that, that have been uh, completed somewhere around uh, 200 B.C. So I want to assert again that uh, these five principles, is it authoritative? Is it prophetic? Is it authentic? Is it dynamic? Was it received and collected and read, used by people who got no counsel or group of men sat down and developed this criteria? If you look internally at the scriptures, these principles resound over and over and over again, and they came as a standard from God himself and not from a man or a group of men or a council of men that came together. I've often asserted in these videos that you really want to do yourself justice if you want to wrap your mind around the theonustia of God or the inspired writings of God to always look for definitional perspective, forgive me, from internal, that which is inside the scriptures or inside the Bible. And I, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but for those of you that are new to my series of videos, if people are going to keep using the Bible to condemn the Bible, I'm going to keep using the Bible to affirm its correctness. Now, if people are going to take the word of God to prove the errors, contradictions, you know, embellishments and so forth, if you're going to continue to do that, then I have absolutely no reverts whatsoever about using that same Bible that you use to discredit to credit it. If not, why not? And that's been my consistent approach and consistent position to this. The historical and biblical process of canonization did not come from man. When it came from the 66 books, um, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the canon of the Old Testament is already locked in place. And when it comes to the New Testament, um, if you go back to video number three, I give you four or five references where, for instance, the Apostle Peter uh, quotes the Apostle Paul and refers to Paul's writing as scripture or as sacred writings. Back in that day and time, between 8058-62, when the apostles were writing other uh, apostles, the, the true church who were reading these letters and epistles in their public assemblies all the way back then accepted these epistles, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, Philemon, James, Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. After that comes the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way back then. These letters are being read before the church, accepted as inspired writings from the apostles, which therefore meant that they were canonical, that they were received by the early church, those, the true church, uh, they were received by the true church as sacred writings. So there is absolutely, positively no validity or truth to the fact that some man or group of men or councils of individuals coming together at a subsequent time in the second and third century to determine canonization. There is absolutely no credible truth to the notion that the Bible cannot be trusted because we didn't even know what went into it until the second and third century. When people consistently and continue to dismiss the divine component, and I've referred to it in the essentiality of it, over and over again. You cannot understand, wrap your mind around, receive the truth uh, with which the, the, the Bible, the sacred writings, the holy word of God is replete if you continue to try to dismiss the divine component. And the divine component is inspiration. That is the divine component is inspiration. And, uh, um, there are many of these these other issues I'd be happy to to uh, to address at another time. I see some questions popping up, and I really want to be able to... Brother Shabazz really is a focused person. I'm really not a cow path chaser, and so I'm not going to depart from the intended topic today. We'll come back to it, but there's, there's no truth about the fact that some man established the day uh, on which the church worships. That's absolutely ludicrous. There's no evidence or proof of that whatsoever, but I, we can visit that at another time, and we'll deal with the books that you read that in and the sources that you got that from, and we'll put it to the litmus test. But th that's another matter. And by the way, I welcome questions, and I want to thank you. I'm not offended at all 
about these questions. I want to deal with them because these questions uh, have been asked time and time and time and time and time again. And I'm not saying that they are not valuable or they should not be addressed and answered because they've come up time and time and time and time again. I'm just saying to you that uh, they are they are not new questions. For those of us who are students of the Bible and have studied these subjects, I study antithetical material as much as I do material that is in favor of Christology uh, and the doctrines of the Messiah and systematic theology and, and, and uh, Christian apologetics and so forth. So that's perfectly fine. But I'm not going to chase cow, cow paths. Uh, I'm going to stay on this notion today, and that is the historical and biblical process of canonization for the New Testament. I've given you the five principles. The 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 uh, and, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you've noticed at the end of these videos, I give you some material to write. If you go back and listen to the first video, I've already given you uh, sources for um, uh, contentions against what I'm teaching. Um, and I read a lot of that stuff. Some of the stuff these people are talking about, I've already read it. And, and a lot of it uh, is not sustainable. Um, you know, people sometimes are top-down thinkers instead of bottom-up thinkers. I'm not a top-down thinker. A top-down thinker starts with a presupposition or a premise and then studies and argues their way down to co cognition. And their cognitive process is only reflective of the evidences about which they've already been prejudiced and tainted. And therefore, they look for confirmation that substantiates their presupposition or their premise. I'm a bottom-up thinker. I want to start with the foundation. I want to consider every concise and precise a pertinent piece of information building up before I reach a conclusion, a conclusion. And so I unapologetically am a bottom up thinker and not a top down thinker. And I don't offer any apology for that whatsoever. You need all of the intricated facts and information um, before you reach a definitive conclusion about what is true and what is not true. So I've given you the five principles of the the uh, canonization, and I'm going to assert this again probably for the fifth time today, that canonization has not been determined by any man. Canonization is determined by God, and man only has the privilege of discovering that which God has uh, determined. So the historical and biblical process for canonization of the New Testament, now let me say to you, that much of the historical data that, that is needed to provide a whole and complete picture of the process of Old Testament canonization has been lost uh, in the midst of, of antiquity. But there is more than enough resounding evidence to give us an overview of Hebrew canon. And there essentially were three steps. Was it the presence of the inspiration of God? Was it inspired by God or viewed as inspired by God. Number two, was it recognized by men of God? Those who received the gift of inspiration, they could know who was inspired and who was not inspired because they had the gift of inspiration. And then third of all, the collection and preservation of the books by the people of God. And if you, listen, people who claim to be woke, you know, they're awake and, and you know, and, and Christian people are in darkness because they don't think uh, which is absolutely preposterous and ludicrous. But if you go back and look at the internal evidence, while people are trying to convince you that religion is nothing but a bunch of man-made systems, I more view them as patterns. Because when I study the 66 books, God is a God of pattern. And if you look at the pattern, the pattern of the preservation of writings has been replete, starting with the Ark of the Covenant, in which was the table of stones that had the writing from the finger of God. They were placed in the Ark of the Covenant along with the uh, Aaron's budded rod, along with the pot of, of manna, and it represented the presence of God. Uh, moving forward from uh, that day and time, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, you have the age of the tabernacle where uh, there is the presence of and the preservation, therefore, of the writings of God. Moving forward from the tabernacle into the temple, there is the presence of and the preservation by God's people of the writings of God. Moving forward to the synagogue, uh, you know, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple, the synagogue. Moving forward, the same repetitive and redundant pattern is present among God's people, and that is in so much as humanly possible, there is the preservation 
of the sacred writings of God. So my point is, they then continually practice the collection and the preservation of the books of the people of God. During the time of Ezra, the book is discovered in the temple, and uh, you know the, the writings uh, and the value of its preservation was something that was celebrated. I mean, these are facts and truths, regardless of one's prejudice towards Christianity, which cannot intellectually or otherwise be rejected or denied, because it is, in fact, a phenomenal uh, truth and fact, whether one's accepted or not, same material. Uh, it doesn't mitigate the fact that it is truth and it actually occurred. So the three principles then relative to the process of canonization in the Old Testament, the inspiration of God, the recognition by men of God, the collection and preservation of the books by the people of God were the criteria. And I want to remind you, when you go back and with unbiased, unprejudiced viewing of sacred writings, you start seeing these redundant patterns where God emphasizes the theonustia or his inspiration, uh, the recognition of writings by men of God that came from other men of God. And so what you subsequently have at the end of the day are 66 books, 39, I don't like to call them Old Testament. I like to call them canon or sacred writings, 27 that were given us by God when looking at the internal resounding principles that help us determine that which really did come from God and that which did not come from God is replete throughout the scriptures. And one cannot reject, uh, rather, forgive me, one cannot repudiate the fact that by the time Jesus came on the scene, Old Testament canon was already locked down. So there's no controversy about what constituted canon or that which was canonical. One cannot repudiate the fact that during New Testament times, the Apostle Peter recognizes the Apostle Paul's writings as scripture and says that in some of his scriptures, there were some things hard to be understood. Paul recognizes Luke's writings and calls them sacred writings or scriptures. One cannot repudiate the fact that these us, that these letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, Philemon, James, Jude, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, were being read in the public assemblies of the church before any dude came along who claimed that he was going to sit down and by his own bias and prejudice and religious preference, sit down and decide that we're going to reject these books and we're not going to reject the others. He could not reverse and repudiate historical pattern that has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before any of these councils began to be uh, convened, and even the earliest of them, I referred to in AD 90, shortly after the destruction of, of Jerusalem in AD 70, there's no evidence that they, they, they discussed the books of Ecclesiasticus, but not for the purpose of determining its canonization. And any other sacred writings that surfaced as a topic of discussion did not surface as a topic of discussion for the purpose of determining whether it had a place in canon. The, the, the marveling thing to me is that as I listen to people who claim themselves to be awake and studied and, you know, not um, closed off as a result of, of not thinking, is how they go back and look at the seven or eight councils, the Council of Nicaea, one and two, the first and 325, the first and second council of Constantinople, the Council of Smyrna, the Council of Ephesus. When you go back and look at these councils and, and, and look at them um, intelligently, and when I say intelligently, I mean really researching the information, and I'm gonna give you some sources that tell you what dates they were handled, how many people were present at those councils, and what their topics of discussion were at those councils. And it was always not about what constituted canon, but what was the proper interpretation of the council, or rather of the, of the, uh, of, of the uh, canon or the scriptures, and never at all what should be viewed as canonical and what should not be viewed as canonical. So who decided which books made up the 66 books? God determined canon. 
Man only discovered what God already determined. And the process of canonization has been in place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, as opposed to the fallacious uh, notion that some man, some group of men, some council came together to decide. No one man, no one council, no one group ever decided that specifically 66 books. There's only 66 books because only 66 of them were inspired by God. Only 39 of them were inspired by God. The Old Testament recognized by the Hebrew and the Israelite people. Only 27 of them were received as uh, sacred writings or scriptures among the true church of the New Testament long before apostate Christianity comes on the scene and the subsequent notion uh, and unscriptural notion of denominationalism and sectarianism as it relates to Christianity. Our problem among man more often than not has not been the veracity of the 39 books of the Bible, but the improper interpretation of them and how to rightly divide them so as to lead man from uh, earth to glory. And that's not an indictment against God. It's an indictment against us. Uh, we have not done as God asked us to do. 2 Timothy 2.15, study. To show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So the fact of the matter is... Uh, who decided the six, six books? God did. Why are there only 66? Only 66 of them met the litmus test. Who devised the litmus test? It comes from internal uh, practices manifested and seen in the scriptures redundantly and repetitiously. And it was not a, it was a no brainer for the uh, for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites. It was a no brainer for the Jews. And if you look without bias and prejudice, uh, at the New Testament Bible, the apostles uh, consistently rejected the notion of false letters, false teachings, false epistles, false concepts. This was Paul's uh, refutation of the Colossian heresy in the book of Colossians. This was the condemnation leveled by the Apostle Paul as he wrote the book of Galatians, a masterful defense against legalism and the spirit of the Judaizing teachers, so-called another gospel. And Paul condemns those body of teachings, whether it came orally or in written form to the church at Galatia as another gospel. And so it should not be accepted as canonical or that which constitutes sacred writings during the New Testament era because its teachings did not tell the truth about God. It did not tell the truth about Jesus Christ. It did not tell the truth about pure New Testament Christianity. The Bible is just replete, and I know I've used that word redundantly. I don't know of a better word. It's replete with instances and examples of how these fallacious teachings were rejected right in our eyes as the unbiased and unprejudiced reader looks at the many historical documents that comprise the 27 books of the New Testament to see that time and again there is refutation against the notion of God's people accepting letters, uh, accepting teachings, whether they were oral or written, that did not meet these litmus tests that go all the way back to the days of, of the Torah and then moving forward into the three divisions of the law, the prophets and the writings and, and moving forward. Here's my answer. God decided the canon. Why the 66 books? None beside the 66 met the criteria uh, in textual criticism, higher or lower. And I've given you a definition of perspective of those in my mind lead one to believe that man somehow has the privilege of determining canonicity. And I want to say to you for a final time today, man does not, has not, never will enjoy the privilege of determining canon. Man can only discover that which God has determined, and God has determined them by this basis of this series of lessons. Theonustia. God breathed. God inspired. And that's what you're always looking for, the theonustia of God the inspiration of God. I put my trust, my hope, my belief, my confidence in every word that ever proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It matters not to me how condescending and irreverent that people choose to be. You can decapitalize 
the name God, or the, des the designation God, it's almost comical to me, as though that in some way de-emphasizes who the God of the Bible is. You can use all of the vulgarity and all of the profanity that one chooses to think that they're adult enough to do it has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on facts, on what is truth. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it's more of a reflection upon those who level that kind of approach. I think most of us are interested in an unbiased, unprejudiced, intellectual, intelligent uh, exchange of facts and information and no use of vulgarity and profanity and irreverence really evidences or proves or sustains or validates any criticism of God, of the Bible, or the Bible itself. The Bible is the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of God. Verbal, God spake it. Plenary, all of it is authoritative, inerrant. It is without error or contradiction. Inspiration, theonustia. God breathed it. And the 66 books we have are the 66 that God wanted us to have. Last of all, side note, if we would spend a little more time trying to understand and better practice the 66 we have, we wouldn't have to worry about any notion of those we don't have. There is nothing out there, ladies and gentlemen, to shake your faith from this community of awake people or individuals who are thinkers and are not victims of systematic religion and, you know, chain-bound, thinkless, mindless Christology and, and all of this other rhetoric which is so vastly far from the truth until it's almost comical. Uh, the fact of the matter is, the 66 books are the books uh, that God wanted us to have. Well, I've got to go. Recommendations. You really want to pick up a copy of Josh McDowell's Already Defense. Here's a guy who starts out as an, Ignathi an uh, uh, atheist and, and, and uh, ends up in another place altogether. The thing I respect about him is that an intelligent person, even if they don't agree, has enough integrity to admit which parts of it are true. I'm suspect of people when nothing is right. You know, nothing about it is right at all. Uh, even atheists, agnostics, infidels, skeptics who uh, view these subjects on an intelligent plane will say, well, this is true, this is true, but let me tell you what is not true. This is not true. That's not true. The other is not true. It's, it's foolishness in my mind, with all due respect. You want to get a copy of this book, Great Read. I like to recommend what I call easy reads because I don't like to read a book over and over and over again to get some some understanding out of it. It's called The Holy Scriptures, and it was edited by Wendell Winkler. Uh, uh, Wendell Winkler. Brother Wendell Winkler came together with probably about 28 or 30 other preachers, and there's a plethora of subject matters among them, uh, uh, subjects about the Apocrypha, some historical data and information relative to it, verbal plenary inspiration, the different theories of inspiration is talked about in this book called The Holy Scriptures. I really want to uh, suggest to you that you get a copy of The Eternal Kingdom by F.W. Maddox. And in this, listen to me, in The Eternal Kingdom, there is a documented record of the seven councils, the dates of the seven councils, how many people attended the seven councils, what was the subject matters of the seven councils, where does the data and information come from to substantiate what was talked about and who was present at the seven councils? And I've enumerated the moral majority of them. Do yourself a favor. Get a copy of The Eternal Kingdom by, by Maddox. Another great read. I've had this book in my library for 40 years. And it is entitled A General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix. And it is an absolute phenomenal uh, reference. If you're interested in looking at a definitional perspective of inspiration, if you want to look at the scripture divisions, when, at what point in time were book chapters and verse introduced into the codex style of, of scripture as we receive them from the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and beyond the, uh, what was the codex uh, renditions of, of scriptures talks about the different manuscripts, it talks about the apocryphal literature, it talks about the principles and criteria utilized in, in man's discovery. 
and not determination of, of canonization. So uh, those are just four. Um, I wish I had more time. I'd give you more and more uh, information on the next go round. I try to give you some information that you can study and read of people who are against this and who are antithetical to it because you need to read that. You need to, you need to read it. Uh, you need to know what's out there. You need, you can't give answers if you don't understand the questions. And I know I'm talking to an intelligent audience today. You were able to differentiate between foolishness and that which constitutes legitimate, bona fide, valid questions and uh, objections. And objections are not based on sarcasm. They are, uh, they are based on not accusations, not simply a quotation that came from somewhere that was read by somebody at some time, but documented evidence. And I've endeavored to do that and to give you the roadmap to my documentations as much as, as humanly possible. Listen, God bless you. Thank you for your time. Listen, I have a new Facebook page. It is entitled Moments in Meditation with O.J. Shabazz. Moments in Meditation by O.J. Shabazz. Please go there and follow me uh, as I continue this series of multi-part uh, lessons entitled The Revelation, Inspiration, and Illumination of the Word of God, Fact or Fiction. Either the Bible is the Word of God or it's not. There's no in-between. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no middle ground. And there's been no credible, uh, successful contradiction, alleged error uh, in all of this other that has been leveled against the Bible that has not been debunked and answered time and time again. And listen to me as I conclude today. I'm all right with people who reject Christianity. That's your right. Reject it. You have, you know, God created you a moral free agent. And I'm not ready to uh, go back and forth and spend a lot of time with people who have no pretense on receiving, studying, researching, evaluating anything I say. I don't have to waste your time and you don't have to waste my time. You have a right to reject it. Go ahead and reject it. I would that you did not, but I respect the fact that God created your moral as a free moral agent. These videos are for people who are digging, who are researching, who are evaluating, who want their faith undergirded and sustained. And somebody goes, well, there he goes with that faith stuff. You know what, man? I'm not getting into this today. Uh, this is the most ludicrous, preposterous, and ridiculous line of philosophical thinking that I've ever heard. There is nothing in this world you can do that does not innately include the intellectual process of faith or trust or belief. Please, give me a break. I don't want to even have that discussion. It's not worthy of time. It's, it's, it's because it's absolutely positive, positively ludicrous and ridiculous. So, you, you know, you use that as an indictment against Christianity. Well, they're blind followers of blind leaders because, you know, all they talk about is you just trust. I've never asked anybody to just trust anything I've taught in 40 years. What I want to do is give you the evidence, the proof you decide for yourself, and then may God bless us all. God bless you. We hope to see you on next Saturday at 2 p.m., the seventh edition of the Revelation, Inspiration, Illumination of the Word of God. And by the way, let me give you a heads up. I may take a break and address this notion that constantly comes up about the name of Jesus. <laughs> uh, this Christianity thing is ludicrous. They've even changed his name. There's no... There's no uh, uh, validity to even transliteration or translation or version. or It's all ludicrous and ridiculous. You know what's ridiculous? Is that no language is sacred. The message is sacred. The language is not sacred. And it's, you've missed the point. The, the sacredness is in the Messiah, not in what you call him. Now, there is no validity to some of the arguments that are made, and I'm going to expose them. So I may elect to take a short hiatus and just deal with this Yahshua and, and these other designations. Man, you have completely missed the boat. Because no, God never gave any language to be sacred. Uh, the Jews of antiquity had so much reverence and respect for the name of God that they didn't write it or say it. So what is your argument? <laughs> what, what argument are you making about the pinnacle of, of reverence and respect and the notion of transparency and clarity? Uh, so much more that, that I want to say about that, but I want to go through it more analytically, give you a definition of perspective, give you a roadmap so we can talk about this nonsense 
of the designations of and Christ is not his name. King is not his name. Uh, these are designations, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that perhaps on next week. God bless you. I love you. May the God of eternal salvation bless you. May he bless you real good. Please like, please share, please help me get the word out. Um, and at some subsequent time, if time permits, I'll start addressing specific questions. If you've not watched my other videos, I've said to you, I'm not chasing a lot of cowtails. I'm going back to the premise. You know, this is like studying with some of the denominational groups today. What about about this? And before they even get, well, what about that? Or what about this? Or what about the other? And what about this? And what about the other? And they're accepted of none of the answers. It's just a plethora of what about this? And what about that? And what about the other? I'm going back to the premise. And the basics. Either the Bible is the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of the word of God, or it is not. Either the Bible came from God, or it is a byproduct of humanistic ingenuity and wisdom. And that's important, because when I know it came from God, I have another perspective of how to seek out these truths, rather than being a top-down thinker with a presupposition and a premise and arguing down the cognition and coming up with a lot of false conclusions, because if your premise is false, so then will your conclusion be false. God bless you. Love you. See you next week.